We almost killed him. I'm drunk. Would have known about it anyway. It would have been murder. Uh-huh. And you know why I tried it, Jesse? Because I damn well felt like it. That's why. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Welcome to Not Just Yesterday, the Roddy McDowell podcast. I have a treat for you today. This bonus episode is a part of my other show, The Dean's List podcast, which is dedicated to Roddy's dear friend, Dean Stockwell. The reason I'm posting this episode here on the Roddy podcast is because for this episode of The Dean's List, I discussed the film Compulsion and the Broadway play from which the film originated. As many of you are aware, Roddy and Dean met and became friends during the Broadway production of Compulsion. And I not only discuss the film, but also talk about the history of the play in great detail. Therefore, Roddy's name is inevitably dropped many a time, and I felt that you would enjoy hearing about it. This episode, being from another show altogether, does not have a number. It is merely here, as say the bonus features on a good movie for you to enjoy. And I hope that you do. Compulsion. Original theatrical release, April 1st, 1959. Starring Dean Stockwell as Judd Steiner, based on Nathan Leopold. Bradford Dillman as Artie Strauss, based on Richard Loeb. Orson Welles as attorney Jonathan Wilk, based on Clarence Darrow. Diane Varsi as Ruth Evans. And Martin Milner as Sid Brooks. Directed by Richard Fleischer. Compulsion is set in Chicago, Illinois, in the year 1924. In the first few minutes of the film, the two Leopold and Loeb-inspired characters are immediately established. Artie Strauss is the arrogant, taunting, existential dominant of the two. Judd Steiner is the brilliant, loyal, troubled submissive. The two young men are first seen fleeing from their fraternity house with the incriminating, distinctive typewriter. Artie wastes no time in criticizing Judd's nervousness, further testing his loyalty by attempting to deliberately run a drunk pedestrian off the road with Judd's father's car. Judd is emotionally wounded by Artie as he has sworn to obey his dominant companion's every command. Yet even as early as the first five minutes of the movie, it becomes obvious that he is the only one of the two with a conscience. Mere moments before Artie makes fatal contact with his intended victim, Judd grabs the wheel, which causes the car to swerve away from the drunk, thus preventing Artie from committing premeditated vehicular manslaughter. Annoyed that his murderous plot has been foiled, Artie commands Judd to switch places with him and drive the car himself. Judd immediately obeys him. The roles of our two main characters are instantly distinguishable to everyone in the audience. Artie is insane, commanding, and narcissistic. He makes the decisions, orchestrates the plan of execution, and gives the orders. Judd is Artie's polar opposite. 
He is consumed by a blinding loyalty and a desperate need of approval from Artie, whom he views as his captain. With each stabbing dismissal from Artie, Judd begs for more orders. His ultimate desire is to be controlled at any cost to himself and others around him. The tone of compulsion, although not as obvious as in the Broadway version, which ran from October 24, 1957, to February the 22nd, 1958, is incredibly bold, particularly for the 1950s. One could easily identify Artie's relationship with Judd as a classic case of abuse, with Judd immediately rushing to his commander's defense at the slightest insinuation from his older brother, Max. Judd? Where have you been? Father was worried about the car. And you too. And me too. That's very touching. Apparently his concern for me didn't give him insomnia. Don't be a smart aleck. Where were you? Up to some funny business with Artie again? As if I didn't know. Then why bother to ask? Wait a minute. I want to talk to you. I don't think we have anything in common, Max. And take your hand off my arm. I don't have to answer to you. Or anybody else, eh, kid? Outside of Artie and your birds. You don't give a damn about anything else in the world, do you? Does my interest in ornithology annoy you that don't much? Don't be a fool. I'm delighted with your success. It just irritates me to see anyone as brilliant as you make a jackass out of yourself over someone like Artie Strauss. I see. For your information, my dear brother Max, Artie Strauss happens to have one of the most brilliant minds I've ever I had. I know all with. about Artie Strauss and his mind. Now, I've no doubt you both have twice the brains that I have. I'd just like to see you use them for once on something besides cheating old ladies at bridge and giggling and scheming in your room all afternoon. Don't you ever go to a baseball game or chase girls or anything? I was your age. I was always on I'm looking. sure you had some fascinating experiences, Max. But some other time. I don't expect any consideration for myself. But Artie happens to be a gentleman. Something I doubt you'd understand. Oh, I understand, all right. Would you like me to tell you something else about him? I think he's a dirty, evil... You keep your filthy mouth shut! I don't have to listen to your insinuations! Shut up, you the whole house! I don't care! Yeah, cool down, I know that Artie's your friend, but I'm older than you, and I know what kind of trouble you can get into. I'm, I'm worried about you, Judd. Will you listen to me? Judd, listen! Next, we see Judd seated in a class at the University of Chicago when his fellow student, Sid, a reporter for The Globe, seeks his assistance when he is late for the lecture. Judd obligingly distracts the teacher, Professor McKinnon, with his views on Nietzsche. Both Judd and Artie, who, like their real-life counterparts, were studying law, share a fondness for the German philosopher and use that fascination to justify their experiments on those they deem intellectually inferior. Judd continues to advocate Nietzsche's assumption that those of superior intellect are above the laws of the common man— Sid chimes in, but fails to convince the professor that he was present at the beginning of the period, despite Judd's efforts to help him pull off the ruse. On a side note, Leslie Wenzel requested that I mention how very taken she is by Dean's portrayal of Judd's arrogant humor, claiming Moses only obeyed the laws of man because he had to lead his motley crew through the desert somehow. This facade of superiority masks the frightened child who dwells within Judd Steiner, and Dean showcases every nuance beautifully, as the lovely Miss Leslie. Professor McKinnon, I must agree with Nietzsche. Tribal codes and such do not necessarily apply to the leaders of society. No. No, Mr. Stein, I, I can't see where your friend Nietzsche's theories have any application at all here. 
Hammurabi, Moses, Solomon, Justinian, they were all known as lawgivers. Actually, my question was whether Moses and the others felt that they themselves had to obey those laws. All men are bound by law, Mr. Steiner. And had Nietzsche been a lawyer instead of a German philosopher, he would have known that too. Are you going to tell me that Moses felt himself above the laws that he had laid down for his own people? Oh, I don't know, sir. He had a motley crew on his hands, and he had to get them through the desert somehow. <laughs> Can you cite an example of any of these men who failed to respect the law or the rights of the individual? Can Nietzsche explain that away, Mr. Steiner? Oh, I think so, sir. If you've read him, sir, you'll remember that he conceives the Superman as being detached from such human emotions as anger and greed and lust and the will to power. And all completely beyond my comprehension, although apparently not yours or Nietzsche's. Perhaps my thinking is outmoded, but I still cling to the theory that if we were all super intellects, we would nevertheless evolve our own code of laws. No, super laws, sir. <laughs> well, an alien voice in our midst. And since I haven't heard it before, Mr. Brooks, I am forced to assume that you were not with us earlier in the period. Well, that's just an assumption, sir. It can't be admitted as evidence. Oh, very good, Mr. Brooks. You surprise me. But just for once, I shall take a leaf from Nietzsche's book place myself above the law and grade you accordingly. That will be all. <laughs> After leaving the class with Judd, Sid encounters Artie, who is telling an exciting and most likely fabricated story about a too-close-for-comfort run-in with a gun-bearing stranger while running whiskey in Canada. Sid knows Artie is full of it, but Strauss is too busy flaunting his intellect to care and invites everyone out for drinks at the Four Deuces that evening. The entire group eagerly accepts, including Sid's girlfriend, Ruth. About this Nietzsche stuff, do you really think there are super intellects? Yes, as a matter of fact, I do. So then, just Artie. swing into the alley, bam, this torpedo cuts loose with a 38. <laughs> my ear. Oh, come on, Artie, cut you it You think out. I'm kidding? All right, what do you think that is, huh? Well, it looks like a moth hole. Oh, no, Sid, he got that running whiskey in from Canada, just for the fun of it. Yeah, sure, just for the you fun don't of it, it, huh? All right, I tell you what we'll do. We'll all go down there tomorrow night, the whole bunch of us, okay? The four deuces. Judd, you know the place, don't you? We're almost late now, aren't we? All right, now, wait a minute. i got to get this set. Sid, you can ask Benny himself about me. He runs the joint on uh, Rush Street, 26. Looks like a store. Mike? Mike, you be there. Okay. Sally, yeah. Pete. Sid, you can bring Ruth, can't you? Well, I tell I you what, I'm Sam. supposed to work the late shift at the Globe. So, what time do you get through? Well, no, 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 wait a minute. I tell you what. Just meet us there. I can pick up Ruth and Judd can. Wait a minute. Uh, you know Ruthie Evans, don't you, Jeff? Hello. I don't believe I've had the pleasure. You do now, so that's all set. Sid, okay? All yeah, right, Ruthie? fine. Perhaps Miss Evans would rather wait for Sid. No, I don't mind. Great. We'll That'll meet there fine. at uh, 9 o'clock. We'll make yeah. it a big celebration. Yes. Sure. Yes. What are we celebrating? Oh, uh, little business deal we got cooking, huh, Judsy? We'd better get going, Artie. Okay, what are you hanging around for? Bank job. Nothing to it. Open it up with a hairpin. <laughs> Next, we see Sid at work at the Globe, where two stories have simultaneously broken over the wires, one involving the drowning of a young boy in Hegwich Park and the other of a kidnapping. Sid has to go to the morgue to gather information about the drowned victim and discovers that the two cases are in fact one in the same. The young boy is identified as Polly Kessler, 
the son of a rich family who lives in Artie Strauss's neighborhood. While looking at the boy in the morgue, Sid notices a pair of eyeglasses that have fallen from his body. At first, Sid assumes the glasses belong to Kessler. After attempting to fit them onto Polly's face, however, Sid discovers that the glasses are far too large, indicating that they belong to an adult. The boy's uncle arrives a few hours later. He positively identifies the remains as that of his nephew, and the media frenzy begins. Word quickly spreads that Polly has been murdered, and that evening, while having a few drinks with Artie and Judd at the Four Deuces, Sid breaks the news about the glasses. A look of horror passes over Judd's face. Panicking, he checks his breast pocket to discover that his glasses are, in fact, missing. Artie realizes what has happened as well, and in a fit of rage, shatters the drinking glass in his hand. The two some abruptly leave the dance hall, sticking Sid with the bill. Okay, okay, everybody, come on! Just sit. Artie, will you sit down? It was just a lucky break. <laughs> Boy, it sure was. You know... If he hadn't identified the body when he did, the Kesslers would have paid the ransom. How about that? Well, what about the paper? Did they give you a bonus? Yes, but not for that exactly. You mean there's more? Oh, there's more. Listen, he didn't tell at all. Oh, sure, sure, just tell us, huh? Well, it'll be in the early morning editions. Just another lucky break. About the glasses. Glasses? What, What do you mean? What kind of glasses? Eyeglasses, you know. The police thought they belonged to the boy, but they looked pretty big to me, so when nobody was around, I tried them on the body. Oh, oh. Well, I had to. Anyway, they didn't fit, so they couldn't have been his. I didn't say anything to anybody. Did you so... mean they could have belonged to the murderer? Well, the police seem to think it's possible. It's not a very logical conclusion. Anyone could have dropped them. But anybody didn't. They must belong to the murderer. Oh, Artie. Bleeding. What set you off? I don't know. Wow. <laughs> what they put in that drink anyway? Hard. No. Just uh, wash it off. Artie and Judd return to Judd's home, apparently hours after the party because Artie's hand is now bandaged in the scene. We then see Judd frantically ripping his room apart, searching for his glasses. Artie sits in judgment on Judd's chair, holding his teddy bear. He maniacally uses the stuffed animal to incessantly taunt Judd with his failures. I can't find them. They've got to be here somewhere. I couldn't have left them out there. Of course not. The last time I wore them, I was studying. Now, tweet that. Yeah, the same one he had on yesterday. The same one he tossed on the ground when he got that brilliant idea about hiding the body. He left him there like a calling card, didn't he, Teddy? Huh? I didn't drop them. You picked my coat up, you grabbed it up by the tail and tossed it to me. That's when they fell out. I agree it was inexcusable to have them oh, in my pocket, but I didn't Teddy. drop them. Isn't that lovely? He agrees it was all our fault. We said dump the body in the lake, but no, he had a stroke of genius. Shove the kid in the culvert, he said. Nobody will ever find him there. No, not in a million years, he said. Artie, will you please stop that? Shut up, we're not talking to you. The first guy by on his way to work pulled him out of that stinking culvert. Why do you suppose he picked the culvert, Teddy? What? Because he was scared and it was the first place handy? Yeah, I think you're right. And you know what else I think? 
I think he never wanted to go through with it anyway. That's not true, and you know it, Artie. We agreed it was the true test of the superior intellect. Superior intellect? <laughs> What do you think of that, Teddy? You and I work out this perfect, beautiful crime. And then the superior intellect tries to see how many ways he can... I heard some loud voices. Well, what are you doing with all this stuff? I was looking for something at two o'clock in the morning. What were you looking for? I don't I'm think terribly that's any sorry we disturbed you, Max, but uh, Judd was looking for a corkscrew I loaned him. But he was just going to drive me home anyway, weren't you, Judd? Drive you? It's two blocks. But the neighborhood's swarming with kidnappers and degenerates. Max, you wouldn't want to be responsible for anything happening to me, would you? Or would you? What's that for? Protection. Teddy? <laughs> I always take him along. He's indispensable. Cute? That girl's always get a big kick out of him anyway. Coming, Judd? I'll be back in five minutes. Or what? The police launch an active investigation into Polly Kessler's murder. Because it was his intention from the very start to lead the detectives on a wild goose chase, all the while laughing at their collective incompetence, Artie takes it upon himself to offer his assistance to Police Lieutenant Johnson. Relishing every moment that he is in close proximity to the police, Artie continues to throw suspicion in the most conveniently incorrect directions. He even goes as far as to point his accusatory finger at several teachers in the school. Older, male teachers whose classes are made up of young boys, and causes the police to question the intentions of each man towards his pupils. Artie's misdirection leads to these teachers losing their positions very quickly. That same afternoon, Judd is having lunch with Sid's girlfriend, Ruth, after classes. Ruth is waiting for Sid to return from helping the police with the murder. Judd is lonesome for company, still being ignored by Artie, and is happily discussing his interest in birdwatching with her. Ruth is genuinely interested and says she would like to go with him. Thrilled, Judd invites her to accompany him on Thursday afternoon. Before she agrees to go with him, they are interrupted by the arrival of Sid and Artie. Instantly, Judd excuses himself to chase after Artie, who brushed Judd off the second he addressed him. Judd says he hopes Ruthie can make it Thursday and runs off after Artie. The following afternoon, Tom Daly, one of the head writers of the Globe, and Sid stop by the Strauss' residence to use the phone. And Sid informs Artie that the teachers whose names he dropped as oddballs and weirdos have lost their jobs. Artie feigns concern over this, saying it was a rotten thing for him to do. A minute later, Mr. Daly finishes his call and informs Artie that the typewriter used to write the ransom note has been identified. It is the one Judd stole from the fraternity house. Angered about this, Artie later pays Judd a visit, intending to scold him for his foolishness in using the typewriter and to test his loyalty to him. During this visit, he learns from Judd about the date for the following day. He begins taunting him, saying, Are you ditching me for some girl? and when Judd explains that he hasn't been able to find him for three days, guesses the girl's identity. He then deduces the location and the activity. Artie, excited, begins snapping his fingers and pacing around the room, saying it's a perfect location, that girls never talk afterwards, and Ruth could scream her head off. Judd shoots a disgusted and furious look at Artie, who asks, What's the matter? Isn't that what you planned? 
Judd tells him it was not. Callously, Artie asks whether Judd is falling for Ruth, which he vehemently denies. When Judd said he simply hadn't thought of it, Artie begins pushing him. Now look, we agreed to explore all the possibilities of human experience, didn't we? Unemotionally detached. But together, Artie. Sure, but I've done things alone. You can too. Don't tell me you haven't got the nerve. It's perfect. And the best part is that Ruth won't be suspecting a thing. What's the matter? You want me to order you to, Judd? At the appointed day and time, Judd attempts his attack on Ruth, but cannot go through with it. He is disgusted with himself, and in shame, falls into a heap on the ground, in tears. What is it, Judd? You seem so sad. That's a sentimental term. There's no such thing as sadness. Only the reality of things happening. You don't really believe that, Judd. Over there, for instance. That's where they found the body of the Kessler boy. Is that sad? Yes, it is. Terribly sad. Is it sad that you're here? All alone with me? Just you and I and little Polly Kessler's ghost. You shouldn't joke about that. Why not? What's one like, more or less? There were nine million people killed in the war. What does one little Chicago boy matter? Judd, you're not that cruel. No. No. Murder's nothing. It's just a simple experience. Murder and rape. Do you know what beauty there is in evil? Is there? Yes. You tried to frighten me, Judd. If you were to move now, why don't you run? Is that what you want me to do? Yes. Do you have to attack me, Judd? I don't have to do anything. If I attack you, it's because I choose. No! Ah! Are you afraid of me? I'm afraid for you, Judd. I'm afraid for you. Oh, God. Oh, my God. I'm so ashamed. When Judd returns from his attempted attack on Ruthie, Artie informs him that he questioned Lieutenant Johnson regarding the glasses found on the body, 
and asked him why the police weren't following the lead. Johnson looked into it and learned that there were 4,200 pairs of glasses that looked exactly like those found on the body. Artie is thrilled, thinking that he has let Judd off the hook as the police can't trace 4,200 pairs of glasses. Or so he thinks. After this encounter, the police come to realize that the two boys are indeed the key to solving the Kessler murder, and several hours later, go to the Steiner home, asking Judd to produce his glasses. When he can't, they take the boy in for questioning. District Attorney Harold Horn takes Judd up to a hotel room to be questioned. The boy is then tricked into concocting an explanation as to how his glasses could have fallen out of his pocket while supposedly birdwatching with his ornithological class outing the day before the murder. Each time, Mr. Horn is able to debunk Steiner's theories as to how the glasses could have fallen out of his pocket. During the interrogation, we learn that though they look like one in a thousand, the glasses are, in fact, unique. Through the process of elimination, he is finally able to prove that the glasses do, in fact, belong to Judd. Horn then begins spending the next several hours gleaning an alibi from Judd for the day of the murder, but Judd refuses to name the friend that he was with, claiming that they were with two girls called May and Edna, and that if he revealed the name of his friend, their overly protective and religious parents would be infuriated should they find out about the girls. Finally, an exhausted Judd concedes when Horn promises not to disclose the information they have learned from him to their parents and names Artie as his friend and alibi for that afternoon, and Lieutenant Johnson is sent to fetch him. Anything I can get you, uh, Strauss? Artie. Just make it Artie, sir. I could uh, use a cigarette, see if you have one. Came away so quickly that I didn't uh, have one of my... Thank you. Oh, this is Mr. Horn, Artie, the state's attorney. Uh, Artie Strauss, Strauss, sir. Nice to know you, sir. I guess you're the man I want to see. Oh? Well, you see... I don't know exactly why I'm here, but uh, if we can make it as quick as possible. Oh, I think we can do that, Mr. Strauss. Artie, please, sir. You see, I uh, answered the door when your men arrived, and uh, since I didn't want to worry Mumsy, <laughs> my mother, that is, I, I just came along. Oh, all right. Well, this won't take but a few minutes. Oh, fine. You see, uh, dinner's at 8.30, and Dad likes me to be on time, particularly when we're having guests. Judge uh, Conway or uh, Conroy, I think it is tonight. Well, let it be Judge Conway of the Superior Court. In that case, we'll make it extra brief. Uh, we'll sit down, Hardy. Well, I'd prefer to stand, if you, you don't mind, sir. The, the nervous type. But, uh, please. Thank you. Well, I'll come right to the point, Hardy. We're interested uh, in a description of your movements in the afternoon and evening of uh, Wednesday the 17th. Last Wednesday. That's uh, over a week ago, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, this is Thursday. <laughs> well, you see, it's it's uh, it's pretty hard to remember that far back. That's what your friend Judd said. He did? But he managed to recall a few things. Oh, well, uh, did he say I was with him? <laughs> That's hardly the point, is it, Artie? We're interested in finding out what you recall. Uh, of course. Stupid of me, isn't it? You see, it's just that I know we were together part of the day. When was that? Well, Wednesday's a school day, and uh, we have two of the same classes. Mm. Uh, we're interested in hearing what happened after school. Yeah. Wednesday, Wednesday. Was that the day the old man, uh, father, had the dinner party? 
Wednesday was the night the little Kessler boy was kidnapped. Is that why you want to know? Then I better get it right. Wednesday. It may help if you recall being with Judd any afternoon and evening last week. Well, I, I, I know I know we went to the Edgewater Beach Monday. That was a party. And the Four Deuces Friday. No, Thursday. But Wednesday. I, I don't believe so. Oh, yeah. I remember. I went to the movies. Alone. And that's all you remember about Wednesday night? Just dropping into a movie alone? No friends? No girls? That's it, sir. I wish I could tell you something more helpful. Yeah. Well, the commissioner just phoned. He wanted me to tell you that Judge Conway called him. For the family, sir. So? Well, nothing. He just wanted me to tell you. All right. You told me. Oh, Johnson. Yeah. What about that other matter? Oh, man, Edna? Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, the two dames. Well, uh, we're still working on that, sir. Mm. Did he say something about two girls named May and Edna? Oh, I don't know if that's their names. Uh, two girls we interviewed as secretaries. That's not true, Mr. Horn. Judd's broken his word of honor to me. He promised he'd never tell it to anybody. Why, Artie? Well, because that's... That's where we were Wednesday night. I would have... With a couple of chippies we picked up on Lakeshore Drive. He knows what'll happen if my family finds out. Well, what else did he tell you that we... Artie, with... have you been lying? Don't you know this is a murder case? Do you realize what the consequences could be? Can't be as bad as what my old man will do. He'll skin me alive if he finds out I was out with a couple of tramps. He doesn't need to find out. Do you want to tell us about it now? Didn't that blabbermouth tell you enough? We'd like to hear it from you. All right. Well, look. It, 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 it wasn't so much anyway. We Look, we were just out, out cruising in Judd's Stutz and... And we saw these two tramps, May and Edna. They said their names were... A couple of crows... Anyway, I uh, wound up with Edna, and Judd was left with... Eventually, when the boys show signs of tiredness and hunger, the officers and the district attorney assigned to the case take them out to dinner at a fancy restaurant. Judd is familiar with the staff and communicates with their waiter in three different languages, including French and German. Lieutenant Johnson and District Attorney Harold Horn seem to initially believe that Artie and Judd are innocent. The only piece of evidence casting doubt is the highly incriminating spectacles. After dinner, the press bombards the group of policemen, Horn, and the boys, asking what is going on and why the boys are still being held. Horn tells the press that they haven't been charged, but they will be held for as long as necessary, and both groups get into separate elevators to return to the hotel rooms and continue questioning. A policeman called Davis informs Horn that the pressmen are correct— Without charges, the boys cannot legally be held. Horn has a niggling reservation about the glasses, which is making him want to hold the boys, but feeling it insignificant brushes it off and tells Davis that he will release them. Once out of the elevator, Horn discovers the Steiner's chauffeur standing in the hallway with Lieutenant Johnson, holding a suitcase. When Horn questions him about it, 
He explains that Judd's father had sent pajamas and some toilet articles for Judd in case the police decided to keep him overnight. When Horn informs him that Judd is being released, the chauffeur expresses relief, saying he knew they couldn't have possibly done it, as Judd Stutz was in the garage the entire afternoon on Wednesday, and they couldn't have gone to Hegwich Park unless they walked. The boys' alibis are now busted, and Horn moves in for the kill. It's all over, Steiner. Your partners confessed everything. Oh, come now, Mr. Horn. Isn't this the sort of thing they do in detective stories? You can hardly expect me to be taken in by that, even if there was something to confess. Yes, I guess it was rather stupid of me at that. You might also have taken into consideration that aside from the fact that he's my best friend, Artie is far too intelligent to... To be trapped by us poor specimens? I suppose so. But uh, Artie was such a good friend of a young man who helped him write a ransom note on a stolen typewriter and uh, who rented a black sedan from the Collins Drive Yourself Agency on May 16th that uh, I thought it might juggle your memory. Do you take me for an idiot? Let's see, what did he say about that car? Oh, yes. I drove it. Judd Steiner was sitting in the back seat with Paulie Kessler. I don't know how it happened, but Paulie started to struggle. Judd told him to be quiet, and then he hit him. He hit him very hard. Oh, that weakling. That child. That inferior weakling. Where is he? Hold it. If he said that, he's lying. It's a cheap, cowardly lie. Mr. Strauss didn't drive the car I did. And I didn't kill Polly. Mr. Strauss did. He's lying. He's lying! Enter Jonathan Wilk, an atheist lawyer with a better understanding of Christian conduct and moral court proceedings than the most competent priest could ever dream of possessing. Wilk is an unpopular choice with Artie's religious father, but he is eventually convinced to allow him to take the case, and Mr. Wilk is asked to consider defending the boys. Next, we see a press conference wherein both Strauss and Steiner are being questioned by District Attorney Harold Horn after their statements are read for the press. When asked whether or not they have anything to add to their statements, each points an accusatory finger at the other, but never make eye contact. It is almost like watching a married couple after a fight, the wife avoiding eye contact with the husband, and the husband refusing to speak directly to his spouse, and both using an innocent bystander as an intermediary for the following argument. The press eagerly snaps pictures as the boys continue their charade with the police. Mr. Wilk enters the room soon after. He acquaints himself with Artie and Judd and instructs them to say nothing to anyone until he has had a chance to speak to them alone, and they are sent out of the room. Well, Jonathan. Harold. I suppose I should have realized you'd appear sooner or later. Would have been sooner... I haven't gone first to city jail, which is where I normally expect to find my clients. Well, we I question here in an effort to avoid publicity. Avoid publicity. Well, they congratulations. Counsel at the time. Well, they've got a counsel now, on with a writ for immediate delivery to city jail. I was about to do that before you came in. Take him down in the freight elevator, now through the back. Oh, alley. wait a minute. You had him for 12 hours. Please spare me 12 seconds. You are Yes. 
Yes, sir. Your folks have retained me as counsel for the defense. I've always admired you tremendously, Mr. Wood. You can prove it, both of you, by saying absolutely nothing to anybody until I instruct you to the contrary. That's it, Harold. Let's go. Come on, boys. Hold it up, everybody. It's a little late to silence them now, isn't it? We, we do what we can. I suppose I ought to consider it a minor victory that the boys weren't hanged before I got here. <laughs> they will be soon enough. Luckily, that decision won't be up to you, Harold. Well, you may as well know, before you decide on a plea, hmm? Dr. Ball and Dr. Stauffer have been observing them. Observing? In their opinion, the boys are completely sane. Might be more interesting to hear their conclusions. The doctors would observe each other. <laughs> At this point in the proceedings, a group of psychiatrists have been asked to determine the mental states of both boys. Wilk hopes to enter a plea of insanity in order to possibly spare Artie and Judd from the death penalty, which in 1924 was achieved by hanging. The debate ensues between Mr. Wilk and the psychiatrist groups. One pair determines the boys are of sound mind, which causes Mr. Wilk to derisively scoff at the sanity of the two doctors who came to this determination. The opposing pair feel that Judd is paranoid and Artie is schizophrenic. Wilk takes this opinion into consideration, but, as he still hopes to gain a plea of insanity for both boys, he speaks to them privately. I see you have the finished report. Should be intensely interesting. These have been the most fascinating four weeks I've ever spent. Do you think that'll be a major contribution to criminology? Hardly say that, John. Why don't you tell him the truth? It all adds up to six feet of rope and a hang. No, no, no. This report might be useful. <laughs> They're betting 20 to 1 we hang. If it's the long shot you're looking for, I've got one just as good. You know that guard that brings us up here every day? He's got a sick wife, five kids, and a house they're going to throw him out of. I know, I talked to him. For $5,000, he could be looking the other way when we come past the admitting desk. Three steps. We're outside. There's a car waiting with a motor running. Uh, and a mad dash to the Canadian border, Artie. Okay, so we do it your way and go to trial in the morning. Oh, still one subject that concerns me. The newspapers have been playing it up. The state's attorney may try to do something with it. It's the fact that Aside from each other, you don't have any close friends. We didn't have any other friends because there was no one of sufficient intelligence and maturity worth cultivating. Is there anything wrong in that? Nothing, unless the state's attorney wants to make something of it with hostile witnesses. If he calls him, I'd like to have somebody speak for you. I'll give you a flock of them. I've got a little black book in my desk at home. The cops haven't taken it. It's got the addresses of 40 or 50 girls I've been out with in the last two years. Ask any one of them what she thinks of me. No, I haven't any little black book. 
No girls? Yes, there is one I've been out with lately. I don't know what she'd say. Well, give me your name. Ruth Evans. But I'd sooner you didn't call her, sir. I don't want her involved in this. I won't call her without your permission. Let's see, boys. Can I ask you one thing? Uh, will Mumsy be... Uh, my mother be there? And Dad? <laughs> Why? What am I talking about? Tuesday, the old lady has the bridge club, and the old man's got his regular date at the country club. Suckers to sit in a crummy courtroom on this one. The trial proceedings are now in session. At this point, neither Artie nor Judd have been called to testify, but Wilkes startlingly changes the plea from not guilty due to grounds of insanity to guilty with mitigating circumstances. This causes a shockwave around the courtroom, and most of the lawyers involved with the case are miffed at his sudden change of course. Wilk, however, is unswayed, and the plea is accepted. Despite his ruling, the judge wishes to see Wilk, along with the families of both boys, in his chambers. And unless you've completely lost your faculties, sir, I demand an explanation for this fantastic well, about-face. Mr. Strauss, has every right to question oh. my judgment. I've taken a big responsibility. If I'm going to persuade anybody of the boys... Emotional instability. Emotional instability. You're going to be the judge alone, but we hired you on your reputation as a manipulator of jurors. Of course we did. That's your... Sitting in that courtroom today, studying that jury, we wouldn't have had a chance with him. No, Mr. Wilk. I can't understand any of this. Will what you did today help Artie? Think so, Mrs. Strauss? I hope so. I hope so. You see, here in Illinois, when you plead guilty, you don't have to have a jury. And that means that I'll be talking just to the judge. I hope you'll be more tolerant than any jury. But I think they should know that if it becomes a question of actual insanity, a jury will have to decide it. But you throw the jury out. Then the judge will have to recall a jury. But what That's else right. is a psychiatrist's testimony except insanity? Functional disorders, emotional imbalances, psychotic They are either insane or they are not. A sane person can't commit an insane act. And after what you Mr. did today... Strauss, I'll understand if you rather have another lawyer. No, sir. Lawyer. Now? The best can. Between now and 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? Ridiculous. No. We're committed to you, sir. And I think we've made a tragic mistake. I hope you're wrong. I really do, Mr. Steiner. From this point forward, the tension between the two boys becomes more palpable. Artie becomes more arrogant and almost seems aroused as the excitement mounts. 
Judd, meanwhile, grows more terrified. His feelings of guilt and shame reach insurmountable levels when Ruth Evans is asked to testify on his behalf. Ruth uses Judd's shame and inability to go through with the attack in his defense, to the shock and horror of Sid and the jury. After her testimony, Judd is so overcome with shame that he faints and falls out of his chair onto the courtroom floor. Now, at the time of this meeting, you had a deep romantic attachment for another boy. Yes, sir. And did you also feel a romantic attachment for Judd? I felt he was alone and terribly unhappy. I see. But did Judd give any demonstration that he liked you as a woman? He kissed me. That's all. No further advances? There were, but they stopped. Would you keep your voice up, Miss Evans? I couldn't hear you. But they stopped. I'm sorry, Miss Evans, but were they of such a nature as to make you determined never to see him again? No. They were not. You would have seen him again? Yes. Within a few hours after this, Judd was arrested. And did your feelings toward him change then? Of course. I realized that the unhappiness I sensed in him caused him to commit a violent, insane crime. And with this knowledge, would you still see him again? Yes. I felt sorry for him then, and I feel sorry for him now. No further questions. Here we come to the end of the trial, and the most poignant part of the film, where Mr. Wilk begins to make his speech to the judge and jury. He begs that the lives of Artie Strauss and Judd Steiner be spared, and that instead of the death penalty, they are giving life imprisonment for their heinous act of murder. His reasoning for this is a Christian one, an example of merciful judgment, and he makes it plain that he wishes this course of action for the sake of retaining the humanity of all who hold the power to call a sentence of life or death over the two boys. His speech is impassioned, powerful, and gut-wrenching, and we see him easily sway all those within hearing in the room. This crime is the most fiendish, cold-blooded, inexcusable case the world has ever known. It's what Mr. Horn has told this court. Your Honor, I've been practicing law good deal longer than I ought to have. Anyhow, for 45, 46 years, during all that time, I've never tried a case where the state's attorney did not say it was the most cold-blooded, inexcusable case ever. Certainly there was no excuse for the killing of little Polly Kessler. There was also no reason for it. It wasn't for spite or for hate or for money. The great misfortune of this case is money. If Your Honor shall doom these boys to die, it'll be because their parents are rich. I hope I don't need to mention that I'll fight as hard for the poor as for the rich. If I'd come into this court alone, with two ordinary 
Some obscure defendants who've done what these boys have done. This crime was had in all this weirdness and notoriety and this sensational publicity. I said, Your Honor, I'm willing to enter a plea of guilty and let you sentence them to life imprisonment. Do you suppose the state's attorneys would raise their voices in protest? There's never been a case in Chicago where in a plea of guilty, a boy under 21 has been sentenced to death. Not one. Yet for some reason, in the case of these immature boys of diseased minds, as plain as day, they say you can only get justice by shedding their last drop of blood. Isn't a lifetime behind prison bars enough for this mad act? And must this great public be regaled with the hanging? For the last three weeks, I've heard nothing but the cry of blood in this room. I've heard nothing from the offices of the state's attorney but ugly hatred. For God's sake, are we crazy? If you hang these boys, it will mean that in this land of ours, a court of law could not help but bow down to public opinion. And as cruel a speech as he knew how to make, the state's attorney has told this court that we're pleading guilty because we're afraid to do anything else. Your Honor, that's true. So of course I'm afraid to submit this case to a jury where the responsibility must be divided by 12. No, Your Honor. If these boys must hang, you must do it. Must be your own deliberate, cool, premeditated act. The state's attorney has laughed at me for talking about children's fantasies. But what does he know about childhood? What do I know? Is there any one of us who hasn't been guilty of some kind of delinquency in his youth? How many men are there here today? Lawyers and congressmen, judges and even state's attorneys who haven't been guilty of some kind of wild act in youth. And if the consequences didn't amount to much and we didn't get caught, that was our good luck. But this was something different. This was the mad act of two sick children who belong in a psychopathic hospital. Do I need to argue it? Is there any man with a decent regard for human life and the slightest bit of heart that doesn't understand it? We're told it was a cold-blooded killing. Because they planned and schemed, yes, but here are officers of the state who for months have planned and schemed and contrived to take these boys' lives. Talk about scheming. Your Honor, I've become obsessed with this deep feeling of hate and anger. I've been fighting it, battling with it till it's fairly driven me mad. What about this matter of crime and punishment anyway? Through the centuries, our laws have been modified. Till now, men look back with horror at the hangings and killings of the past. It's been proven that as the penalties are less barbarous, the crimes are less frequent. Do I need to argue with your honor that cruelty only breeds cruelty? That every religious leader who's held up as an example has taught us that if there's any way to kill evil, it's not by killing men. And if there's any way of destroying hatred and all that goes with it, it's not through evil and hatred and cruelty. It's through charity, love, understanding. This is a Christian community, so-called. 
Is there any doubt that these boys would be safe in the hands of the founder of the Christian religion? I think anyone who knows me knows how sorry I am for little Paulie Kessler. He knows that I'm not saying it simply to talk. Hardy and Judd enticed him into a car, and when he struggled, they hit him over the head and killed him. They did that. They poured acid on him to destroy his identity and put the naked body in a ditch. And if killing these boys would bring him back to life, I'd say, let them go. And I think their parents would say so, too. Neither they nor I would want to release them as be isolated from society. I'm asking this court to shut them into a prison for life. Any cry for more goes back to the hyena. It roots back to the beasts of the jungle. There's no pardon, man. This court is told to give them the same mercy that they gave their victim. Your honor, if our state is not kinder, more human, more considerate, more intelligent than the mad act of these two sick boys, then I'm sorry that I've lived so long. I know that any mother might be the mother of little Polly Kessler who left home and went to school, never came back. I know that any mother might be the mother of Heidi Strauss, Judd Steiner. Maybe that in some ways these parents are more responsible than their children. I guess the truth is that all parents can be criticized. And these might have done better if they hadn't had so much money. I do not know. The state's attorney has pictured the putting of the poor little dead body in the ditch. But Your Honor, I can only think now of taking these two boys, 18 and 19, penning them in a cell, checking off the days and hours and minutes until they're wakened in the gray of the morning and led to the scaffold. Their feet tied, black caps drawn over their heads, stood on a trap, the hangman, pressing the spring. I can see them fall through space. I can see them stop by the rope around their necks. It would be done, of course, in the name of justice. Justice. Who knows what it is? Do I know? Does Your Honor know? Can Your Honor tell me what I deserve? Can Your Honor appraise yourself and say what you deserve? Do you think you can cure the hatreds and maladjustments of the world by hanging them? Mr. Horn says that if we hang Hardy and Judd, there'll be no more killing. The world has been one long slaughterhouse from the beginning until today. And the killing goes on and on and on. Why not read something? Why not think instead of blindly shouting for death? 
kill him. Because everybody's talking about the case. Because their parents have money. Kill him. Will that stop other sick boys from killing? for these two lives, but for life itself. For a time when we can learn to overcome hatred with love. When we can learn that all life is worth saving. And that mercy is the highest attribute of men. Yes, I'm pleading for the future. In this court of law. I'm pleading for love. When the speech is over, silence falls completely, and the judge calls recess till ten o'clock the following morning. As everyone stands and is ushered out to leave, the camera cuts to Artie and Judd. We see Judd facing Mr. Wilk with a look of morose gratitude on his face. He wants to say something, but he can't find the courage to do so. At the same time, we see Artie staring at Judd a hard, stony look upon his face, almost daring Judd to say something, so that he can exact punishment against his wayward servant. But since Judd never speaks, Artie never needs to act in retaliation. Both boys are ushered out with the rest of the jury and the witnesses. The next cut shows Sid stopping Ruth as she comes out of the courtroom. He tells her he's glad she went on the stand, and that it took a lot of courage for her to do what she did. He then walks off, almost as if he feels things are over between them. But Ruth stops him, takes his arm, and they walk off together. Finally, we have come to the verdict. Mr. Wilk has won. The boys are given their sentences. And the film comes to a dramatic end. For the crime of murder, to be confined in the penitentiary at Joliet for the term of your natural life. For the crime of kidnapping for ransom to be confined in the penitentiary at Joliet for 99 years. The sentence is to run consecutively. Court is adjourned. So we slept through three months of misery just to hear that. I wish they'd have hung us right off the bat. That's your only reaction, Artie? No remorse, no feeling of remorse. I wasn't expecting you to fall down on your knees and thank God for deliverance. God? That sounds rather strange coming from you, Mr. Will. A lifetime of doubt and questioning doesn't necessarily mean I've reached any final conclusions. Well, I have. And God has nothing to do with it. You sure, Judd? In those years to come, you might find yourself asking if it wasn't the hand of God dropped those glasses. And if he didn't, who did?
As is expected of our darling man, Dean's performance in this film was a striking one. He gives his entire heart and soul to his performance, making his character even more sympathetic than one suspects from the beginning of the film. We find ourselves rooting for Judd as we watch the film, sweating and praying that death doesn't come to him in the form of the hangman's swift and greedy rope. And when the final verdict is revealed, you will undoubtedly find yourself breathing a haggard sigh of exhausted relief because you've been perched on the edge of your seat, teetering with the constant threat of falling to the floor from the moment the film began until the film ends. And now that the credits have rolled, it is refreshing to sit back, go limp, and breathe deeply once again. Yes, my friends, the film version of Compulsion is a roller coaster ride with many twists and turns that keep you at a constant, taut tether. Often, you feel if the events and the characters pull you much tighter, you'll snap clean in half. Yet, the film version is, by comparison to the play, extraordinarily tame. The deepest subject of the play, which is certainly skated very rapidly over in the film as not to infuriate the censors, was the deeply rooted underlying theme of homosexuality. In reality, Leopold and Loeb were sexually involved with one another. The play was more open with this fact of the story, and though nothing was ever directly touched on, hinted much more liberally upon this relationship between the two characters. Also, in the play version, the roles by way of frailty and innocence were slightly switched. In the Broadway production of Compulsion, Roddy McDowell portrayed Artie Strauss and his touch to the character made the concept of Artie's schizophrenic nature far more terrifying than Bradford Dillman would have ever dreamed of. McDowell added a vulnerability to the character, by way of making his mental state one of complete unawareness of his actions and the consequences they gleaned. Many reports have been that during a jail scene in the final stages of the play, McDowell's Artie has a complete meltdown, dropping down onto his knees before his mother grabbing a firm hold around her legs, and while rocking back and forth, whimpers repeatedly. I want my teddy bear. There are photographs of this scene on the compulsion section of the Tribute to Roddy McDowell site, xmoppet.org, along with other photos of Roddy as Artie, sitting tautly upright in a chair and clutching the teddy bear for dear life, a look of abject horror across his face. Reports of this portrayal of Strauss showed him as being far more unhinged than he is portrayed in the film, as it shows a mind which is completely lost to the ravages of insanity. McDowell's Artie Strauss was completely unaware of his vile actions of murder and mayhem, and he becomes so confused during the process of the trial that it sends him into a tailspin, which can only be compared to that of a terrified child cowering in a corner. Dean's portrayal of Judd in the play, however, was as we saw in the film, if not perhaps a bit less open-mouthed and wide-eyed. Here are some articles I found on the play version of Compulsion. This is a few clippings from Sheila O'Malley's blog on Dean Stockwell from August 2007. Compulsion, the novel, was written by Meyer Levin and became a bestseller. It's based on the Leopold and Loeb case, although he changed all the names, morphed a couple characters together, and was primarily interested in the psychology of that relationship. He goes into great detail, the king-slash-slave sexual fantasies that Leopold and Loeb acted out, and what they meant in terms of the power dynamic, what they signified, etc. 
Levin adapted his novel into a script, which then went into production for Broadway. It was a hot property, one of the bestsellers of the day. The script was very much true to the novel and did not shy away from some of the details that the eventual film would not be able to mention. Roddy McDowell played Artie Strauss, or Loeb, on Broadway, and Dean Stockwell played Judd Steiner, or Leopold, the role he would eventually recreate in the film. Roddy McDowell did not do the film, which angered Stockwell. He loved working with McDowell, and had been quite vocal about how brilliant he thought Roddy was in the part. The handsome Bradford Dillman played McDowell's role in the film, and oddly enough, Dillman originated the role of Edmund in Long Day's Journey into Night on Broadway. It made him a star, and it was the same role that Stockwell eventually would do in the film version in 1962. Compulsion was a hot property. Everybody wanted to be in it. Stockwell didn't have to campaign for it, though. Alex Sagal, director, called him up and asked him to read for it, saying that he had in mind the role of Judd for him. Stockwell was not a big reader, not that he didn't like books. I just mean that he didn't like to read for parts. He doesn't feel that he can really show up and do his thing when he's reading. But Sagal insisted, so Stockwell read for the part. It went great, and Sagal offered him the role. Stockwell suffered in the city like a caged bird. He suffered so badly that he came down with the Asian flu, part of a huge epidemic at the time where people were dropping like flies. The show had to open without him, and his stand-in did the previews. Stockwell recovered and did a run of the show, getting great reviews. I love the film, but of course, I would have loved to see the live production. And here is a snippet from Maria Zambrana's book Nature Boy, which I found via xmoppet.org on the play. However, it should be mentioned before I read this, the author herself has admitted to a great many factual fallacies in this article. So many things are inaccurate. But it still gives us an idea of what went on during the production, even if it isn't completely perfect facts-wise. Thank you to Miss Zambrana for giving me permission to use this in the podcast. By the summer of 1957... Dean Stockwell had successfully restarted his acting career. Along with appearances in Gun for a Coward and The Careless Years, he also landed some television roles in Front Row Center, Matinee Theater, also known as Cameo Theater, Schlitz Playhouse of Stars, The United States Steel Hour, Climax, and Wagon Train. Then, in the fall of 1957, he had the opportunity to perform again on Broadway, something he hadn't done since his stint in 1944's Innocent Voyage. The anticipated play was called Compulsion, and was based on Meyer Levin's semi-biographical novel, originally titled Compulsion and Free Will. With the title shortened to Compulsion and the publication labeled as a documentary novel, the book was finally published and released by Simon & Schuster in the fall of 1956. The story centered on a real murder case in which Chicago residents Nathan Leopold Jr., age 19, and Richard Loeb, age 18, chose a victim at random, then kidnapped and murdered him. The body of their 14-year-old victim, Bobby Franks, a distant cousin of Loeb's, was abandoned in a culvert, and the two young men continued with their plans to collect ransom money for Franks' kidnapping. Less than two weeks after the murder, the police tracked down and arrested the two boys, putting them on trial for kidnapping and murder with the hope of getting the death penalty. Famous lawyer Clarence Darrow defended his clients in a historic case and saved them from a hanging death, winning each of them a sentence of life plus 99 years. Loeb never fulfilled his sentence. He was killed in prison in 1937, but Leopold went on to become a model prisoner. 
and was released on parole in 1959. Levin enjoyed the quick fame that came from the novel's release. He suddenly found himself as a celebrity and an authority on the psychology of crime, contacted by radio and television stations interested in his viewpoint. His success with Compulsion earned him respectable reviews and got the attention of Hollywood. In December, producer Daryl F. Zanuck of 20th Century Fox purchased the screen rights for Compulsion, under the stipulation that Levin prepared a theater adaptation before December the 1st, 1957. The deal gave Meyer Levin the liberty of choosing his own Broadway producer, and he wanted to wait for actor Orson Welles to take over the production. Despite the legendary actor's strong interest in the play, Welles' unstable financial situation could not handle the strain, and Levin found himself rapidly approaching the December deadline. After Lee Connell, Theodore Mann, and Jose Quintero, the co-producers of Long Day's Journey Into Night, rejected the play, he finally settled on producers Michael Meyerberg and Leonard Grunberg to handle the production. Many actors came forward expressing an interest in the roles being offered, particularly the leading roles of Judd Steiner, a caricature of Nathan Leopold, and Artie Strauss, Richard Loeb's fictional double. Early in the auditioning process, hundreds of hopefuls had to go through arduous cattle-call auditions with the producers. In the foreword of his published work, Compulsion, a play, Levin explained his dismay at having no control over that element of the production. It had been suggested that it would have been a waste of time for him to be present for the preliminary casting interviews. And during the process, he met one major candidate for a major role, and then only long enough to shake hands. The set designer had daily conferences with Alex Sagel, the director, and Meyerberg. Levin did not, and he began to get seriously worried about it. Stockwell, unlike the other actors who auditioned, simply got lucky. Sagel called him from New York and asked him if he wanted to do the role of Judge Steiner. The Loeb-Leopold case fascinated the actor, and he agreed to do a reading for the producer, Michael Meyerberg. He was afraid that he'd blown his chance because he couldn't read the part very well, due in part to his haphazard studio schooling. Instead, he felt it necessary to study and rehearse a role and to grow comfortable with it. Despite his skepticism, the reading went favorably, and contracts were drawn up and ready for him to sign. Stockwell enjoyed working with the other cast members of Compulsion and with his co-star, Roddy McDowell, who was awarded the role of Artie Strauss in August of 1957. McDowell's performance demonstrated a deep understanding of the role. It also came at the height of his acting powers and was arguably the greatest role he ever performed. Trouble began with compulsion early on, when Michael Meyerberg and Meyer Levin engaged in a public argument through the press. They soon took one another to court over the script. Levin resented the fact that the producers had brought in another writer, Robert Tom, to revamp the script and make it more stage-friendly. In doing so, they also took away Levin's creative input on the project. The newspapers reported the dispute between Levin and Meyerberg on a daily basis. Levin sued the producer over the loss of creative control and sued Tom for libel and lost wages. Both Meyerberg and Tom then countersued Levin. With his parole imminent, Nathan Leopold also began to sue over the use of his name. He ended up suing Levin, Meyerberg, 20th Century Fox, and even the movie theaters that eventually showed the film. Meanwhile, the actors in Compulsion began the arduous task of performing. 
The stress of taking on the character, not to mention the shift into theater performing and his move to New York, affected Stockwell considerably. Although he relished the role, the depressing subject matter became a difficult experience to live through, night after night. Bad luck hit the production just after rehearsals began, when Stockwell became one of the thousands of people in the United States affected by the Asian flu epidemic. His illness canceled one of the preview shows, but he was well enough to appear at the opening night performance. His stand-in, DJ Sullivan, took over the role in a few preview performances, and a couple of times during the play's run. Due to the strain from his demanding role as Jonathan Wilk, a shadow of real-life lawyer Clarence Darrow, actor Frank Conroy suffered a heart attack and had to be rushed to the hospital. The newspapers mistakenly announced his attack as the flu, but corrected themselves on the following day. Conroy's stand-in, a young man named Michael Constantine, stood in as the famous lawyer and performed admirably in the role. Stockwell's sickness, Conroy's heart attack, and the legal disputes delayed the opening of the play for three days, from Monday to Thursday, October the 24th. The critical reviews on compulsion were printed the following day, and their opinions on the drama varied widely. The script and the length of the play were criticized harshly, but Stockwell and McDowell received high praise for their portrayals. Walter Kerr of the Herald Tribune claimed in his first night report that there are scenes that catch hold in their first few moments and seem to explore every nuance of disturbed and disturbing minds. Dean Stockwell, for instance, draws his mouth taut, freezes his shoulders, and in gasp after effortful gasp, wrings from himself the truth of his relationship to a master he has chosen to serve. The gringing arrival at self-knowledge is chillingly drawn. Roddy McDowell and Dean Stockwell play the two boys brilliantly. Mr. McDowell, antic and arrogant. Mr. Stockwell, crushed, weak, and gloomy, remarked Brooks Atkinson of the New York Times. Frank Aston of the New York World Telegram and The Sun printed one of the most praising critiques of the two actors in his article, Murder Trial is Strong Tonic. And here's one spectator to report that at the finish he felt tired. The truly exhausted ones, however, must have been Roddy McDowell and Dean Stockwell who played the killers. What a beating they took. Their every moment went full tilt. They did so well, so often, that it was difficult to choose high spots. Mr. Stockwell probably reached his peak of agony in confessing his unnatural passion, and Mr. McDowell reached his in a heart-tearing jail scene with his mother when he sobbed. I want my teddy bear. They're magnificent, these lads. Stockwell, however wonderful his performances, had trouble adjusting to the theater lifestyle. The exhausting role kept him on stage for almost the entire run of the play, and he needed a lot of rest to prepare for it. Roddy McDowell also felt the strain of it, and reportedly lost 30 pounds due to the high energy level demanded of his character. McDowell also strained a ligament in his chest in December 1957 during a performance and had to leave the play for a week. Along with a physical and emotional backlash of such an intense performance, Stockwell also had to contend with living in an unpleasant environment, New York City. He despised everything from his one-room apartment to the weather, the lack of fresh air, and the claustrophobic vertical feel of being surrounded by skyscrapers. Every Monday, his day off from compulsion he would drive to Connecticut or upstate New York to visit the country and return a little refreshed to resume his dark role of Judd Steiner. In his spare time, he attended classical music and jazz concerts, 
music, which he had a great passion for at the time. Afterwards, he would visit a restaurant called Downey's on 8th Avenue, where a number of young adults in show business hung out for some food and conversation. His sweet tooth still lingered from childhood, and he loved banana cream pie and chocolate pudding, along with milkshakes and cheeseburgers. At one point, there had been plans to move the production to Chicago and to England. The play skipped Chicago, Leopold's hometown, due to its controversial subject matter, and the overseas production did not hit the stage for several years. The production ran its course at the Ambassador and closed on February the 22nd, 1958. The production of Compulsion, both Broadway play and film, had its difficulties in starting out. All seemed to be primarily within cast parameters, as with the internal legal battles between the writers for the play and then later on the temporary clash between Dean Stockwell and Bradford Dillman. Dean did apologize to Dillman after the incident, however, explaining that he needed to stoke his fires for the scene where he had to be very angry with Dillman's character, and the two got on just fine afterwards. The film's biggest problem was the egocentric actor Orson Welles, who Dean later commented on in a 2013 Skype interview, He was a bully. I loathed the man. Wells was used to always having control and getting his way, at the expense of everyone who dared step beneath his mammoth feet, and was constantly fighting with the writers and the directors on the production. But when the film was finally finished, and all problems out of the way, the whole thing worked like a dream, and is today considered by many to be one of the top film classics of all time. If you haven't seen Compulsion yet, I suggest that you do so as soon as possible. Though it is unfortunately impossible for us to go back in time and see the Broadway production in its full glory with both Dean and Roddy McDowell giving both parts their all, the film is a good one. And though it doesn't shine by the same gold standard as the play, it still has stood the test of time and remains to be one of the very best semi-historical dramas ever made in cinema history. That's all for tonight's episode of The Dean's List. Thank you all for listening. And until next time, Dean lovers, hold on to your stogies. I wanna live, I wanna kill. I've been a miner for a heart of gold. It's these expressions I never give that keep me searching for a heart of gold. And I'm getting old. Searching for a heart of gold, and I'm getting old. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Bradford Dillman, who passed away suddenly on January the 16th, 2018. He was 87 years old. Much like Dean, his career was immense and diverse, as he appeared in 140 films in his lifetime. He also worked with Dean and Roddy McDowell on several occasions after the making of this film. He was an extraordinary man of extraordinary talent, and his legacy is one that will reverberate through the ages until the end of time. My condolences to the Dillman family, and may you all find comfort in the memories that Bradford left behind. This has been a Barren Space production. <laughs>